And really good to see all of you here this morning. If you want to find your Bibles and turn to John chapter 9, John 9. For all of you who are joining us online, we're delighted to have you with us. And we want you to find John chapter 9. I want to take you back to December 1991, certainly a highlight for me. Uh, I was working in the business world in Portland, Oregon, and I had all this grand plan that I was going to ask Karina uh, to marry me. I thought I had about a 50% chance that she was going to say yes. I was feeling really good about the holy situation. And how this worked is I took some vacation days. Uh, My family had moved to uh, Florida, Gainesville, and so I was going to fly and spend some time with them. Karina was going to fly out to Florida, join us, then she's going to fly back. I was going to be back New Year's Eve was the night. This was all going to happen. I had it all planned out. I thought my chances were pretty good, and I was pretty excited about the whole thing. So when I got on that plane to fly to Florida, it was a red eye that was going to have a stop over in Houston and then make, my, make its way into Florida. I was all fired up, and there were a lot of folks on the plane, and I happened to be sitting next to a, a gal who was pretty much in the opposite emotional state as me. Uh, I was so excited about what was happening, I just couldn't help but to just tell her, you're my neighbor, guess what's happening with me, you know? So I told her. And when I find out what's going on with her, uh, she was devastated. She had uh, basically experienced complete failure in her position as an accountant. She was flying back to Houston in total defeat. And she was someone who had her whole identity wrapped up in her job, and she couldn't believe what had transpired, and she was... She was really at the end. And so she's got to be thinking like, how in the world does this happen that I'm sitting next to a guy that is completely fired up when I plan on sleeping the whole time? But, you know, I could have just said, you know, well, don't worry about it. Things will work out, right? I could have sung her a little part of a tune that was very popular at the time. Don't worry, be happy, right? Or I could have thrown out the, hey, you know, I'll just kind of pray for you, right? But I sensed that what she really needed was hope. She absolutely had none So I asked her, would you mind if I just shared how Jesus Christ had changed my life? I'd been a Christian now for several years, and so I asked if I could just share my story. She was happy to hear it, which, you know, coming from the Northwest, it's kind of surprising, but she was open. I shared with her my story, and then she seemed to want to know more, so I have this line diagram of the gospel, and I shared it with many of you, and I said, well, do you mind if I just share with you to give you clarity as to who Jesus Christ is? And so I walked through this, and she seemed very interested and very eager. So I said, well, if you really just want to know who Jesus is, there's a a chapter in the Bible. I, I just want to read it to you, and I want you to see with your own eyes firsthand who Jesus is. And it was John chapter 9, and so she let me just read it, and I opened it up, and I want you to know that um, if you were here today, and you want to know who is Jesus, then you're not going to do better than this particular chapter. Maybe you're here and you're really wrestling with who is the identity of Jesus. And you, or perhaps you know people and you're like, man, they really need clarity. John chapter 9 is a great chapter if you want to understand the person and the work and the identity of Jesus. So if you want to know who Jesus is, you first of all need to know that he is the light of the world. So let's take a look. John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. So as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? 
So here they are in Jerusalem, and they encounter a man who has been born, and that's been his entire existence, congenital blindness. And if you are blind, uh, there's only really one way that you're going to make any sort of living or survive or find food, and that is to beg. And so if that is your condition, you want to be where people are and perhaps be where people might feel generous. And so he had staked out a place, uh, likely somewhere by the temple, where worshipers would come and perhaps they would feel sorry for him and give him maybe some alms, a little bit of money, maybe even something to eat. And so that is his situation here. Now, if you were blind and you had been that condition for your entire life, it's a devastating way to live, a, a very painful existence. Just try this. Just close your eyes just for just a few seconds and try to put yourself in his shoes. Complete darkness. He didn't see life in black and white, certainly not color. Whatever imagination he had, he could just use his fingers to feel. To feel, perhaps, a tool, a wall, a door, water in a pool or a bucket. Maybe a human face as he took his fingers and placed those fingers on that head, trying to envision what, what this might be. And if you want, you can open your eyes, but I want you to be thinking about him. Because he could not see why his life was radically different than most people. Certainly as a, a young boy, um, he was very different than the rest of the boys. Never could go outside and play. Um, there was no opportunity to learn how to read. You, he simply couldn't see. And then, of course, when, when folks were learning jobs and learning how to do things and learning how tools worked, um, that was never a possibility for him. And his existence would be as such that any time he had a need, he would cry out and ask, help me. And of course, someone who loved him would come and, and do the best they can to provide for him. And that was his existence. But then came the day where his parents decided that really he could just no longer live in their home. He had to make a way in this world on his own. And so that day came, and so he had to learn how to survive. Difficult, far beyond anything that you might imagine, to try to make an existence when you couldn't see. So before, when he would say, help me, someone who loved him would come, provide, try to provide help. Now, when he said, help me, if help came, it came likely from someone he probably didn't know, and of course, he couldn't see. And so he would develop patterns of trying to survive. And perhaps on this day was just like every other day. Wherever he could find a place to sleep, likely on the hard ground, perhaps sheltered, maybe not. He would wake up. If you ever slept on the hard ground, you know like, oh my, and you feel it everywhere, right? So would he. And he'd, he'd stretch and and he would gather up whatever cloak that he might have. He'd hold his garment. Likely it would be cold outside. He'd pick up his, his walking stick and start tapping his way and making his way to his place where 
he would then spend the rest of the day begging. Perhaps on his way, this familiar route, maybe there was someone that would show some kindness to him, maybe giving him like a piece of old bread, maybe a couple crumbs, and that would be his sustenance for the day. But he would then go and, and make his way, position himself, that greasy old cloak, lay down his walking stick, stick out his hand, and start crying, help me, that beggar's intonation, help me. It was at this point that we see here that Jesus passed by, and he saw the man who was blind from birth. And notice, not just Jesus, but his disciples. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Now, Blindness was actually very common in Israel. And of course, if you became blind, you most likely never saw again. It's said in the law in Leviticus 19.14 that uh, the people of Israel were to show care and concern for the blind, to never impede them, to be a help. But you know, like a lot of scriptures that they didn't really like, they just kind of bypassed that. And that's because the overwhelming predominant thought at that time, was exactly what was espoused by the disciples. If a person had blindness, there was a really good reason. Either that guy sinned or his parents did. But someone sinned and he pretty much got what he deserved. That was the predominant thought among the people there. And notice the disciples. I mean, it's almost as if the guy isn't there. Jesus, rabbi, they refer to him to be teacher, who sinned, this guy or his parents? You see, the blind man for the disciples was just a theological curiosity. He was just a riddle to be solved, not someone to extend care and compassion to. It was just like, all right, Jesus, what, what's wrong with this guy here? Who sinned? You see, that was the predominant thought. And so they asked Jesus, and when they said that, I mean, think of just the lack of discernment. Say it right there in front of him, this blind guy. That question, that question he had thought of a thousand times. Each time it was like an arrow that just went right through his heart. Who sinned? Well, they asked their question, and Jesus answered, verse 3, It's neither that this man sinned, nor his parents but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And these disciples are like, what? Because the thought was someone had to sin. But Jesus was opening up their understanding that, you know, people suffer. And sometimes it's not a result of their own sin or their parents' sin. Now, I want you to know the Bible makes it clear. There are sometimes some pretty serious earthly consequences for active rebellion and sin against God. But that's not the only reason why someone might have an illness or a sickness or a blindness like this. Many of the times, it's just because we are fallen people living in a fallen world. We have inherited a condition from Adam, a rebelliousness toward God. And when Adam sinned, it plunged all of humanity, even this world, existence, into brokenness, into fallenness. And because we're fallen people living in a fallen world, there's a lot of brokenness. And I'm sure you've experienced it in your life. How could you not? It's everywhere around. But Jesus said, you know, I want you to know, this situation here 
is so that the works of God may be displayed in him. People with disabilities, physical, emotional, intellectual challenges. It's so that the works of God might be displayed in them. That'll give you a whole different perspective on people with significant challenges. Maybe even you. So Jesus makes this statement. In God's mysterious and wise providence, sometimes his children go through great hardship. And then Jesus says, verse 4, we, not just me, we, the disciples, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. We must work while we can. Do you see, Jesus is including all of them. I'm involving you. You got to completely change your mindset and your heart. But you need to know that there is a time of opportunity. This is the day. This is the day of grace, the day of opportunity. But Jesus says there's time of night coming, a time of God's judgment where it's going to be over. Day of grace over. Right now, opportunity. And I want you to be involved in my work. And then Jesus goes on to say, verse 5, And while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. If you want to know who Jesus is, He is the light of the world. The work of God is the work of sharing the good news of salvation, the work of making disciples, of expressing the love and the life of Christ. And Jesus says, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. You want to know absolute moral purity. You want to know who God really is, God incarnate, the very presence of God, knowledge, wisdom, truth. Jesus says, I am the absolute embodiment. I am the light that is in the world. He didn't cease being the light after his resurrection and when he ascended into heaven. Rather, he manifests his light in the lives of his people. In fact, Jesus told them that on the Sermon of the Mount. Remember? You are the light of the world. How's that possible? Because of his life, shining, living, and working through them. And so he says, we must do the works while we can. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. You need to know something. If your faith and trust is not in Jesus Christ, you are in darkness. What are you talking about? I see just fine. No, you really don't. There's only one light for this world, and it's Jesus. And if you want to know who Jesus is, he's the light of the world. He's also the life-giving Messiah. So let's see what Jesus is going to do. Look at verse 6. So when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes, and he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam which is translated sent. So he went away and he washed and he came back seeing. Whoa! He had never seen, never had physical sight before and now he sees everything. And here we have Jesus. Now, what is the whole deal here? Spit, dirt, clay, We don't know why Jesus chose this method. Perhaps, perhaps he was recreating eyes, eyes that could see. Because do you remember that God created 
humanity, man, out of the dust of the earth. Think about that. And perhaps he's recreating eyes that can see for this man who had lived his entire life in blindness. And blindness was common. And Jesus had interfaced with people that were blind before, and he actually healed in a variety of ways. Here, he put spit, dirt, clay, told the guy to wash. In another occasion, there were two of them that were blind. He literally touched their eyes, and they were healed and could see. On another occasion, he put spit in his hand, put it on the guy's eyes, and he could see. Why is that? Jesus changed up how he healed so people wouldn't get focused on the actual manner of the healing, but on the message of his healing to authenticate that he is God. Not that they caught up, well, Jesus got to do these steps, and if we do these steps, why, we're going to have the same results. It's all meant to focus on our understanding that Jesus is God. He is this life-giving Messiah. So he went to the Pool of Siloam. It's very interesting. And here's, here's some pictures of the Pool of Siloam. This is its current existence, what it looks like. Here's an artistic rendition of what they believed it looked like in the first century. And so he would go to this pool, and he had to obey what Jesus said. And he did. It really is kind of reminds us of a member of a guy by the name of Naaman, King Naaman of Aram. Remember he came to Elisha and he, he wanted being to be cleansed from his leprosy. And remember Elisha said, well, you go to the Jordan and you take a bath seven times, kind of dip down there. He's like, what? I, why am I doing that? There's rivers where I came from. Why do I have to do that? But he was reminded and said, you know, he asked you to do something why don't you just obey? Maybe the blind man, like, what? You know, I've washed my faith like a million times. But you want me to go do that? But you know what? To in order to experience and to know who God is, you got to obey him. And so he does. So he goes to that pool and he washes and he can see. Imagine what that would be look like as he's coming back all of a sudden. Whoa. People, sights, everything that he had just heard, perhaps felt. He saw birds. He saw people walking, dogs, the dirt that he had been, he was walking on himself. He was just like, whoa, he's taking it all in. And here we see him, verse 8. Therefore, the neighbors and those who had previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, that can't be, no way. But he is really like him, but he's like him. But he kept saying, no, I, I am the one. And so they were saying to him, well, then how then were your eyes open? And he answered, the man who is called Jesus, he made clay and anointed my eyes. And he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know, because I've never seen him, right? I, I, don't, I don't know where he is. And they're all trying to take this in. Where, where are you? Where is this Jesus? And how is it that you can see? Are you really the one? I'm really the one. And he's just taking this all in. So that's what you guys all look like. But I want you to know that from this point on, the formerly blind man is beginning to see Jesus with greater and greater clarity. But I want you to know there's some people that are very interested about what just took place. 
some people that are not seeing so clearly. Folks that had actually set themselves against Jesus, specifically the Pharisees. And if you want to understand the nature of unbelief and the rejection of the Messiah, take a look at what starts to unfold, beginning in verse 13. They are completely unmoved by the facts. So here is this guy. He is absolutely thrilled. He can see, verse 13, they brought him to the Pharisees, the man who was formerly blind. Now, it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. You see, the Pharisees, while they had set themselves up as those who were ultimately completely devoted to God, and they expressed their devotion not with a heart of worship and affection and love for God and for people, but by following rules, legalists. And they had all sorts of rules, especially on the Sabbath. Hundreds of rules of what you could and could not do. The Sabbath, God gave to humanity, specifically the people of Israel, a day of rest, a day of honoring and rejoicing in God. It was meant to be refreshing, life-giving. They had taken the Sabbath, put so many rules on it, it was a massive burden. I mean, you had to count how many steps you could take, what you could do, and they had all sorts of rules that you had to follow. They couldn't always follow their own rules, but they sure were looking for folks that were in, in disobedience on them. And some of those rules had to do with what Jesus just did. You see what Jesus did? He worked on the Sabbath. He had made clay. Uh, 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 no doing that. He had healed. The only allowance that the Pharisees would make in terms of like healing, like if someone was injured to help them, is if it was life-threatening. If it wasn't life-threatening, you're like, you're going to have to wait a day. It's the Sabbath, and I ain't moving. I'm not going to break the Sabbath. Now, was this man's blindness, was it life-threatening? No, he spent his whole life like that. And that was the problem. They didn't like Jesus. They had rejected him because he stood in juxtaposition to their rules. He had told them they had misled the people. He was inviting people, building relationship with people, giving them life, hope, instruction, very different than how they functioned. And so because Jesus had done this on the Sabbath, we're going to have a showdown. And so verse 15 then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Verse 16. Well, therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. He's not like us. So he can't be from God. You see that? That mindset? But others were saying, well, wait a second here. Now, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. You know, you'd think that these guys would be all really excited and cheering, like, man, I'm so happy for you, but none of that. And there is a division. These guys are on the horns of dilemma. Because Jesus had violated their Sabbath rules. And they're like, see, this is very clear evidence. This man is not from God. He's a troublemaker. We got to get rid of him. On the other hand, there were some among the Pharisees, at least a minority, that were saying, you know what? We better think about this a little more carefully. This is a bona fide miracle. We can't just so easily 
dismiss this. And we don't know who was among them, but it may have been Joseph of Arimathea, or maybe it was Nicodemus. Because earlier in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 3, verse 2, Nicodemus, one of the rulers of the Jews, he comes to Jesus at night secretly, and he makes this statement. He says, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. We know that these miraculous works that you're doing, these can only be done if God is with you. We know that. The problem was, a lot of these Jewish leaders, they wanted nothing to do with Jesus. They were jealous of him. They didn't like what he stood for. They didn't like what he was saying. And so they're, they're asking these questions. And they're wanting to know, what in the world is going on? And there's this division going on. So verse 17, so they said to the blind man again, well, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? The blind man thought about it for a second, and he said, he is a prophet. Oh, wait a second. That's not going to go over well. You see, the prophets had, in the Old Testament, some of them had done miraculous works. Can't you see this man who is now being able to see, trying to find a category for Jesus? Started off as a man, now he calls him a prophet. There were prophets that did miracles. Moses, Elijah, Elisha. They did bona fide miracles, authenticating that their word and their message was from God. And so he's like, you know, Jesus, I, I, I think he's a prophet. You see, his eyes are opening and he's seeing more and more clearly. At the same time, the Pharisees, their eyes are becoming more and more clouded over. They're, they're going deeper and deeper into darkness. And so, verse 18, the Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. And verse 19, and they questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? And his parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes? We do not know. You ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Verse 22. Why are they behaving this way? His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him, speaking of Jesus, to be Christ, the Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, you ask him. I want you to know that um, this should have been a glorious scene of reunion. This is the first time that this man who had been born blind, the first time in his life, that he'd ever seen the faces of his parents. And yet it all happens in kind of like this judicial setting. And his parents are cowering in fear because the, Jews, the Jewish leaders said, if you confess Jesus as the Messiah, Christ, the anointed one, you're out. You're out of the synagogue. You're like, well, big deal. Go to another synagogue. It doesn't work that way. You are out. You don't have a faith to practice with the community of believers. You don't have a place to gather. You're out, the, out of the community. All of your working relationships, you're done. You're an outcast. You're going to be ostracized. 
And his parents were very fearful of that. And so they're saying, we can say this is our son. He was born blind. But how he can now see, you ask him. That's on him. We want nothing to do with this. That's what's going on here. And do you see, you see what the Pharisees are doing? You see, they can't figure out what happened. And they most certainly aren't going to say that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah. So you know what you do? You have to tear apart the evidence. You've got to assassinate the character. They have a narrative. And Jesus being the Messiah, the promised one, where their faith and allegiance needs to be with him, that doesn't work for them. So you know what? They're going to do everything they can to tear it apart. You know, we're kind of familiar with this. This is how, like, politics plays out here in America. We have, we're going to have an investigation. I'm really going to get to the heart of the matter. Are you serious? What is it? We got a narrative. This is what we think has happened. And anything, any sort of inconvenient truth that doesn't fit in that, what are we going to do? Ah, we're going to ignore that. We're going to jettison that. It's going to get no press. We're never going to talk about those things. We're going to focus on this. We're always kind of trying to maneuver and, and work things out in such a way that it looks as if we've come to the right conclusion despite the facts. And that's what's happening here. So they're, they're unmoved by the facts. And furthermore, they're unwilling to trust what is demonstrated to be true. Look at verse 24. And so, a second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, you give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he's like, really? Verse 25, you you know that. He then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, Now I see. And so they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? This is the fourth time he is asked, How did he do it? How did he open his eyes? Think of it. Okay, this guy hasn't been seeing for very long. And they keep dragging him in and having them look at him. And so he's forced to deal with angry old men who keep asking the same questions over and over and over again. It's like, listen, we've covered this a lot of times. I really don't even like looking at you. There is so much for me to see. And yet you we're keep repeating this. And they keep throwing this question. How did he do it? How did he allow you to see? So they, they ask him that in verse 26. And he said, verse 27. He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. (laughs) How many times do I have to go through this? And you are not listening. The story is not changing. I'm staying with the facts. And then he makes this statement. You see this in verse 27? (laughs) Oh, you do not want to become his disciples too, do you? Oh, is that what this is all about? You also want to become a disciple of Jesus? How do you think that's going to go over? They explode. They are absolutely furious. Verse 28, they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. You're his disciple, but I want you to know, man, we're disciples of Moses. We know that Moses was sent from God. God did did his work through him. We're aligning with him. We want nothing to do with this Jesus. They saw him as blasphemous. He came from a no-name village. He was born in Nazareth of all his places. They wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And so they said, we're disciples of Moses. 
It's very interesting, though. Jesus had already told them about Moses. In John chapter 5, verse 46, he said, You know, if you really knew Moses and you really followed what he wrote, you would believe in me. He told them that. John chapter 5, verse 46. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. I am the fulfillment of what Moses wrote about. I am the fulfillment of the pictures of all the sacrifices. His statements refer to me. Well, and furthermore about this, like we don't know where he's from, that's actually not true. They knew exactly where he's from. Do you know why? Because Jesus told them. Earlier in John chapter 6, verse 38, he told them this, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You want to know where I'm from? You want to know my power, why I'm doing what I'm doing, who I am? I've come from heaven. I'm here to do the will of God. And they would have nothing of it. They thought he was deranged, untrained, a blasphemer from an insignificant family and from a no-name village of Nazareth. So look at here. He's, they were just totally upset with this man. So he said, verse, he said, verse 29, We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. And then look at how this man answered. I'll tell you what, this is brilliant. Verse 30, the man answered and said to them, well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. They literally throw him out. He is excommunicated. And here's some rather amazing statements here. This man, who's been now the fourth inquisition here on this same subject, he says, Now this is pretty interesting. It has never been heard of someone who has been born blind who has been healed. And all of the Old Testament, the, all of that history, do you know how many incidents of a blind person being healed? Zero. None. Never happened. But it was expressed and predicted and prophesied that when Messiah would come, there is a miracle that will clearly identify him. You know what it is? He will give sight to the blind. This isn't just a miracle. This is a messianic miracle par excellence. And they know it. You see, you're either going to trust him and follow him and obey him as Messiah, or you're going to fight tooth and nail and do everything you can to reject him. And you know what option they picked? We'll have nothing of it. They said, you were born entirely of your sins, right? And Jesus had actually earlier just made that statement. That's actually not true. So think of it. They attack this man. It is character assassination. This is what unbelief does. You grow more and more hostile toward God and his Messiah. And think of this man. What a day. He had started this day as a person who was disabled and an outcast. Then he went 
to become a celebrity, right? Like Jesus had healed him. I mean, everybody's like, whoa. And then he was a witness to the miracle, but treated as a criminal. And by the end of the day, he's an outcast once more. Who is Jesus? He's the light of the world. And he's the life-giving Messiah. And this man can see. There's one more truth that you need to know about Jesus. He is the Lord worthy of all worship. Look at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out. And finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus had heard that this guy had gotten kicked out of the entire community. And notice that Jesus found him. That is how it always works. Jesus does the seeking and the finding. It's not like, well, I'm going to seek you out and find Jesus. If you're seeking, I want you to know it's because God is seeking and drawing you to him. And so Jesus seeks out this man. He knows exactly where he is. He finds him, and he asks this question, do you believe in the Son of Man? This is a messianic title, like from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, of this coming eternal ruler, this Son of God. He's referred to as the Son of Man. This is a title of magnificence. It's the title of Messiah. And he asks, do you, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, verse 36, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. Think of that statement. You have seen him. He's the one talking with you. You see him physically, but you see him spiritually. You know who he is. And when you know who Jesus is and you see him for who he really is, how do you respond? Just like this man. Look at verse 38. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. When you really see Jesus for who he is, you worship him. I want you to know my happiest moments in life are worshiping Christ. His magnificence, his beauty, his purity, his love, his mercy, his justice. The fact that a guy like me has been given sight to be able to see and to know him, to rest in his love and the reality that he loves me forever. Expressions of praise and of thanksgiving, of worship, giving of life, the giving of thanks, that's what this man is doing. And he worshiped him. And then Jesus said, verse 39, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those that see may become blind. He came for judgment Because how you see Jesus and what you think of him, and if you trust and believe in him, that really determines whether or not you're going to face his judgment. Jesus didn't come the first time to execute judgment. He is going to return, and he will judge. Night is coming when no man can work. But this is your day of opportunity. And so he says this, I have come so that those who could not see may really see. Those who come to a place of brokenness, God, I'm broken, I'm in darkness, I need you. They see him. He gives them life. 
and light. Now notice verse 40. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. You see, pride prevents a person from seeing the identity of Jesus Christ. Because when you're satisfied with the darkness, you see really no need for the light. If you say that I see just fine, and you're not broken and realize your true blindness and the darkness of your heart before God, you're still lost and you're still in your sins. When we see Jesus as Lord, though, we're drawn to worship him with our lives. And I want you to know that if you are truly one of Christ's, he intends to do his work through you. Your situation, right where you have, I want you to know that God intends to do his work through your life. You got a disability, something's not right. You got serious issues. I want you to know God intends to display his work and to do his work through you. And we are to live differently. Why? Because our eyes can see. We may be excommunicated. We may find that people don't really want to associate with us. We may face some hardships because of following Jesus, but I want you to know that God's work is being manifested in our lives, and God graciously involves those who worship him to be involved in his work because, friends, you and I are here to be about the work of the master. Night is coming where no work is going to be done, but right now, this is our opportunity. Opportunity to care, to serve, to share, to give of our lives, to share the gospel with those who are lost, to make disciples of all the nations, not to live life in comfort and comfort and complacency, but life of commitment and compelled by the love of the Savior. Night is coming when no one can work. Remember that gal on the airplane? Well, when we finally landed in, landed in Houston, we got off the plane and I needed to go catch my connecting flight. I said goodbye to her and, and said, you know, it's been a delight to talk with you. And she looked at me, and I'll, I'll never forget this. She looked me in the eyes, and she said, I will see you in heaven. And then she turned, and she walked away. I will never forget that. You know, eyes that behold the wonders of Christ in this life will see him in the life to come. I have a question. Do you see? Do you See, I'd like to know this. Will I see you in heaven? Eyes that behold the wonders of Christ on this earth will behold the glories of him in heaven. You see, when we see Jesus as Lord, we are drawn to worship him with our lives. Let's pray.